Welcome back to PS Editor's Podcast. I'm Greg Bruno. The Western-led international order is in disarray, and perhaps no recent event illustrates this better than this year's chaotic G7 summit in Canada. Tensions are escalating between Canada and the U.S. as a war of words begins. Very dishonest and weak are just two of the things Donald Trump had to say about Justin Trudeau on Twitter last night after the G7 summit ends in complete disarray. In the end, the leaders of the world's most advanced economies couldn't even agree on boilerplate language about peace, prosperity, and whether they were committed to a rules-based international order. Perhaps we should have seen this coming. For years, groupings like the G7 and multilateral organizations like the International Monetary Fund have been criticized for failing to reflect the pace of global economic change. For example, while many emerging markets are outperforming Western economies, they remain largely sidelined in global governance institutions. For my guest today, that amounts to a dereliction of duty. Jim O'Neill is the former chairman of Goldman Sachs Asset Management and has just started his new job as chair of the Royal Institute of International Affairs, better known as Chatham House. He is most famous, perhaps, for coining the BRICS acronym in 2001. And with the leaders of the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, now gathering in Johannesburg for the 10th summit, this seems like an ideal moment to talk about the consequences of the failure to reform global governance structures to reflect today's economic realities. Hi, Jim. Thanks for joining us today on PS Editor's podcast. Very nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, we're very excited and lots to cover, so let's jump right into the conversation if we could. Mm -hmm. You've long argued that if global economic governance is to be effective, its main institutional structures need to do a better job representing economic reality. How should global economic governance change, in your opinion? And might more representative groupings address monetary and macroeconomic issues in general? How might they do that? Uh, and in particular, future economic crises? Well, I think in the breadth of your question, you've partially answered, answered it already, in my view. I think uh, as uh, sort of ironically, but beautifully and strangely, and also not very pleasantly uh, represented by the G7 meeting in Canada recently, uh, we live in a pretty outmoded form of global governance. Um, the G7 countries, uh, which of course represent the historic uh, most important seven democratic economies of the world, became prominent in the 19, uh, actually not till the 1980s, when that group of countries dominated the world economy. Um, it's not been that way and increasingly not been that way ever since uh, the turn of the millennium, uh, arguably since the mid-90s and the Asian crisis. So if we want to truly have globally representative uh, governance, however difficult it is, somehow we need to have at the core of whatever the right current answer is, a system that can change and evolve through time, a sort of Sometimes in the past, I've thought of it almost as like a, a equivalent in sports, some kind of promotion and relegation. But part of the dilemma is whatever entity get, that gets set up in any point in time may become irrelevant 20 years after. Uh, and that goes to the conceptual problem we have. But the specific one, which I think is a, a, a much deeper dilemma than many Western democratic countries realize, 
is we still have a, a general state of global governance where it feels like historically important democracies are basically trying to dictate the right way to run the world to a group of other countries that are economically bigger uh, currently and have been for many years, especially in the case of China, a lot more successful and therefore uh, very skeptical about playing by the rules that they set. Uh, and somehow we need to urgently change it. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, one of the, the underlying themes of the G7 uh, summit was membership or absence of membership. Russia should be in this meeting. Why are we having a meeting without Russia being in the meeting? You've written and have called for China and Indian membership. Um, and that kind of goes to the point that you're making, that, that membership yeah. is not nimble enough to respond to, to the realities of the day. I mean, I would say, I, I do think, even though there the are issues about accountability and size, I, I think the, the, the existence of the G20, which, of course, uh, it, it had already been set up, but it really came to the fore uh, by President Bush and then uh, British Prime Minister Gordon Brown in the 2008 and 2009 crisis rescue mission. The G20 does, by and large, uh, include most of the world's important economies, uh, and importantly, some that are not democratic and some, and of course, many that are. And that is a lot more representative than what we have elsewhere, and in, in particular with the G7. But of course, the dilemma, going back to one of the phrases you used in uh, answer to my last comment about nimbleness, it, you know, the G20 has a lot of, it actually has more than 20 countries uh, and can be accused of not being... Um, small enough to deal quickly with issues that arise. But I do think, you know, the G20 is a significant uh, improvement in terms of at least a group that's representative of the modern world. But I, I've argued, as I did in that latest piece on this topic for Project Syndicate, that within the G20, we, we need some kind of new G5 or G7. Uh, and in that context, maybe it's not irrelevant for me to point out that the G7 itself uh, only came out of uh, sort of sympathy, I think, by uh, Washington and maybe maybe Paris and, and Bonn at the time. To They, they sort of added on Italy and Canada uh, in the uh, early, or sorry, very late 80s or mid to late 80s, when, when in fact the G5 was a dominant uh, weapon of at least economic and financial governance. Uh, and of course, as we know, uh, uh, soon after the fall of the Soviet Union, it temporarily became the G8 with the inclusion of Russia, because when we like, we thought they were going to be a democracy. Hmm. But I don't think it's a realistic way to try and run the world. Uh, based on some numbers I've played around with, so far this decade, nearly half of the change in global, the global nominal value of dollar GDP has come just from China. And uh, obviously, therefore, anything to do with global economics, uh, you can't do anything without without China. It mm. matters so much. Uh, as I'm also fond of saying, China creates another Italy every two years. Um, you know what? What is what? What is the point of Italy being in this in, in this dominant individual small group of global leadership? 
I mean, interesting on China, it seems like, you know, you've been talking about increasing the role for growth economies, uh, your phrasing, emerging economies to many others for some time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, and uh, what seems to be happening, though, is that some of these countries in China in particular, but also Russia, um, may, you know, be getting a little bit impatient or, or at least going their own way. You know, China is building institutions like the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and the SCO, yep. the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, while Russia you know, has its uh, Eurasian Economic Union, which to yep. many are seen as alternatives to the Western-led order. Well, it's, I mean, if you think it in the context of what we've discussed so far, it's not really surprising, is it? If, if these guys feel they're not, they're not welcome at, at some kind of accepted global table of governance, uh, but they've got their own global interests and they want to have their own voice, it, you know, it's not very surprising that they try and set up their own. Uh, and an, an irony in terms of my views on this, I, I, I'm... As you know, we're just about to have the the tenth meeting of the the annual political uh, gev- gathering of the so-called BRICS countries leaders, and actually that that came out ten years ago, in my view, for the same sort of reason. And and, and why I say it's ir- ironic, it's not really clear to me that as of yet that BRICS leaders meeting has really done a great deal, other than highlighted the fact that you have these countries that want to meet on their own. Um, and so you are getting all these different things slowly, or, or maybe not slowly, certainly uh, including the ones you highlighted, appearing all over different parts of this complex geographic world. And yet at the same time, we have something that, from what I can see in a truly global sense, is, is sort of redundant in the G7. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Let's let's stick with the BRICS for a moment. And, and BRICS, you're, you're referring to the term you created back in 2001 uh, to capture the growing economic importance of Brazil, Russia, India, India, China. And then in 2010, South Africa was added to form the, yeah. the BRICS acronym. Talk about yeah. your predictions uh, 17 years ago now. You've already you've already suggested that that asset class is still still relevant, that that grouping of nations is still relevant. Um, but what should we expect from the tenth summit, which is uh, set to take place in South Africa this month? Beyond uh, more statements of, of cooperation, uh, it's a very good question. Uh, I, in the current mood, uh, I find myself I, um, I'm trying to set set them a challenge from anything I talk and write about it, and I'll do it with you. I, I think they should set themselves an exam question as they go into this 10th meeting. What have they achieved at all by meeting together? It's, it's not clear to me, as, as, a, as a lot of South Africans get very upset hearing me say, it's not clear to me why South Africa's even in, in the club at all, uh, other than the fact it's a, it's a reasonably, de- you know, it's obviously a democratic African country with a vaguely developed uh, uh, form of, of governance a la Western standards. But, uh, you know, China creates another South Africa every three or four months. Um, certainly not rep- representative of the rest of Africa. If you speak to any Nigerian person, uh, particularly in policy, you know, they get very irritated by the idea that South Africa supposedly represents their interests. Um, so there's one, one issue, and, and I sometimes tease the BRICS uh, leaders' advisors that ever since South Africa came into the club, 
that coincided with the peak of the BRICS uh, collective economic performance, ironically. Hmm. Um, but in addition to that, uh, you know, the core exam question is, have anything they have done helped any of their individual growth performances or their collective economic, particular trade and investment performance? During uh, the last six of the 10 years that they've met, uh, three of the BRICs, including South Africa, uh, themselves, Brazil and Russia, as everybody knows, have had a very challenging economic uh, period. And the second decade of, of my acronym has not been as powerful uh, for them individually as it was the first. Um, although I quickly add, of course, China continues to go along the path that I, I thought out. But the, the exam question for the BRICS leaders is, what is the point of meeting unless they can do something to help uh, each other and their collective benefit? Because mm. at the end of the day, isn't that the purpose of all these uh, forms of global gatherings? You know, one would imagine that they're, they're supposed to be there for some real purpose rather than just symbolism. Yeah, and certainly a, perhaps a good time to answer that exam question as we look at you know, some of these other global governance structures that are not being as effective as they could be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, completely. So maybe it's time to create a new to, to create a new acronym, and perhaps we should do it on the podcast today. Um, <laughs> maybe it's maybe it's time for the next bricks. If you could just talk a little bit about your next eleven, uh, and is it time to restructure uh, the types of groupings that we place in growth economies that are you know important to uh, global economic growth? You know, let me just before directly answering you, let me just talk a bit more about the bricks. I mean. You know, whilst whilst Brazil and Russia, of course, had a very difficult decade, it is the case 17 years on, uh, because they all did so well in the first decade, that the the the, the relative and absolute position of the of the BRICS countries, with the exception of Russia, but including Brazil, is sort of where uh, I envisaged it at the start of the last decade. Uh, you know, despite Brazil's problems, it's still one of the 10 largest economies of the world. It's as, you know, it's bigger than Italy. There's another reason, you know, if I was Brazilian, if I was a Brazilian leader, I'd be thinking, well, why should uh, we not be in this G7? Why, why, why are Italy in it? Um, so, you know, yes, some of the BRICS issues and, and economic, particularly economic performance of some of them hasn't been particularly impressive uh, this decade, but neither of, of those of uh, other existing alliances, including much of the European Union. So, so it's important to remember that. And the other thing I'd like to say is, you know, the ongoing economic performance of China from the, the long-term perspective of the BRICS thinking that I and my colleagues did, uh, is, is almost perfectly in line with what we envisaged. And yes, China has slowed down, and yes, China has issues, but the overall Chinese performance for, for people, the few people that think about its evolution in the way we did, it's going exactly uh, as we expected. So anything that China really lends its weight to, which does include the BRICS club still, and of course, it includes the Asia Investment Infrastructure Bank, and it includes the New Development Bank, and so on. These are very important things for the increasingly outward-looking China. So, with all that in mind, let me let me now turn to the question you asked, um, because I think it's relevant in the context of another issue to do with China, which is uh, the so-called One Belt One Road Initiative. 
Um, China is obviously front and center and, and of that, and one might even call it it's China's baby. And I say it in this context because many of the so-called next 11 uh, emerging economies, which are, is literally a phrase I and my colleagues dreamt up for the next 11 largest populated countries after the BRICS, many of those next 11 countries uh, are in the, in the broader uh, sort of uh, circumference of one belt, one road. And I, I think at this moment in time, if China really wants that to be a true, true source of global success, and not as some of the cynics just often say, as a way of China helping to get rid of ex, uh, excess capacity in some of its old industries, I think it's important that some of these countries are, are not only uh, excited about being a bigger part of that, but China should find a way of allowing some of these places to perhaps even design how one belt and one road uh, should develop, hmm. uh, whether it be uh, the likes of Vietnam or the Philippines or, or Pakistan, or actually, uh, crucially, one of the BRICS countries uh, to India. Uh, at, a, at a time where we have this uh, very worrying threat uh, of conventional ways of global trade from Donald Trump, if India and some of those other countries I just said were all excitingly proactive about One Belt, One Road, the impact potentially of all of that on certainly Asian trade, but global trade as well, would be so vast, we'd all be sitting around wondering what what is the relevance of what Trump is talking about. And so there's lots of things these, uh, these BRICS and other countries' leaders can do if they are determined to actually use these forums to be a, a force for common economic and social benefit. I mean, let's stick with that leadership point for, for a moment, because it seems to me we have a couple of problems. We have the representation problem of, of membership that's reflective of economic reality, um, and we have a desire to be nimble, and, and countries like China that, and, and Russia that, that see uh, some benefit to essentially going it alone. But in the global framework, for it to be truly effective again, leadership will, will need to be essential. And with the U.S. going in one direction, the United Kingdom going uh, in, in largely the same inward-looking direction, the European Union divided and China's stance somewhat ambiguous from a global perspective, who's going to take charge of this reforming? So, you know, on one level, because it is 17 years since I thought of the, the whole BRICS concepts, perhaps strangely, on, on one level, a lot of what you've just rather beautifully outlined, isn't that surprising to me? Because, of course, as we started off by discussing, the old established way of running the world was a lot easier when it was just dominated economically by Western democracies. And so may, maybe we are in this sort of strange era, era of sort of a bit like a poker or chess game where we're trying to find out what is the right new structure. But with, with that conceptual comments in mind. I, I think that the, the IMF uh, has a serious uh, obligation, in my view, to try to come up with at least some uh, proposed concept of how uh, major institutions, themselves included, 
should adapt and evolve and be representative through their board and voting structure and with it, with the G5, G7, G20 and so on as we grow through time. Uh, I, I sort of joked about it earlier about some kind of concepts of promotion uh, and a better phrase than relegation, but we, we sort of need to have that. I mean, because when you, when you really stand away from it and look at it from 40,000 feet, you know, China and India, to take the two most populated ones, are obviously both countries of more than a billion people. And, and, and given that long-term economic growth is basically driven by working age demographics and productivity, uh, it, it's sort of common sense that at some stage in the future, these two countries will be, you know, if not the absolute biggest, close to being the biggest in the world. And that's what our BRICS thing showed. And it looks like we're on that path. Hmm. And so why, why should it be such a big deal for everybody else to worry and complain about it? I mean, you know, the United States has been the biggest and most dominant economy in the, in the world for, what is it, 50 odd years, if not longer. And that's the way it's become accepted. But, you know, the UK was that in the last century, uh, in the century before last. And, you know, we, we've sort of vaguely, maybe, maybe Brexit questions what I'm about to say, but we've sort of gracefully accepted our, our relative decline. And, and importantly, as a nation and with our citizens, benefited individually and collectively with, with higher wealth, with the emergence of all these other places. And, you know, that's that's just seems to me normal and natural. And we, we need to have some kind of global governance that doesn't get so sensitive from a national perspective to the rise and fall of various nations. And I think the IMF is the only institution I can think of that has some real obligation to, to at least suggest the right kind of criteria to deal with this as we go through time. Yeah, I think that's where I was going to wrap this back. You know, starting at the, uh, we started our conversation with a look at the G7 and the chaos and the inability to even agree on platitudes about staying united and in, in <laughs> building a world united in peace and prosperity. We couldn't even sign that. So who's going to decide the promotion and demotion of countries is a much bigger question and a far more complicated one. Uh, yep. But it sounds like uh, your, your, your view is that the IMF is the only institution with any sort of um, credibility to, to handle that huge task. I think it probably is. Uh, and I, I, I share the views of, of of a number of international thinkers that I've discussed these kind of issues with over the years, the last thing we want is, you know, the creation of yet another institution just to do promote and preside over this. And when you've got something like the IMF, which itself has to, to evolve. Um, I have, I have to say as a bit of a plug, uh, as you may know, uh, I am uh, within a week or so of becoming uh, the new chair of Chatham house. And, I think there's an important role for think tanks like Chatham House um, to to come up with uh, much more detailed uh, and credible solutions to these kind of major challenges of our era, which are likely to be at least as challenging, if not more, as we go through uh, the, the next decade and beyond. But I don't think these are insurmountable dilemmas it just requires people to be open-minded and to get out of their comfort zones hmm. well we will certainly be looking forward to seeing what you and chatham house come up with and until then thank you very much for joining the podcast today 
Thank you for having me do it. That was Jim O'Neill, former chairman of Goldman Sachs Asset Management, former commercial secretary to the UK Treasury, and chair of the Chatham House International Affairs Think Tank. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review our podcast and subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. Until next time, I'm Greg Bruno. Bruno.